this week, trees get better at carbon eating with age. It's sort of like if, if you were uh, paying attention to your favorite sports team, and it turns out that the 90-year-olds on that team were the star players on the team. And the heady heights of studying birds in flight. The guy in charge said, you really have the opportunity to go on, go up in a microlight. And I was like, I don't really want to go up in something which to me is a flying chair with a hairdryer on the back. Plus the US drug agency crackdown on personal genetic tests. This is The Nature Podcast for January the 16th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. We're starting on a high this week, as Thea Cunningham finds out why birds benefit from formation flying. Birds of a feather flock together. Sometimes they do it in a big cluster, but sometimes in a neat V formation. It's a sight that's long intrigued scientists, like Steve Portugal of the Royal Veterinary College in the UK. I think people have always been really interested in how birds fly, and particularly birds that fly in a V formation. And it's simply because you look up to the sky and you see these birds in this such an organised state that you instantly go, how are they doing that? Why are they doing that? And it's something that go back in history for centuries and centuries and you find this written record of this fascination. So why do they do it? There's been so many theories put forward so far to try and explain why birds fly in these distinctive V formations. And these theories range from a, a traditional, the more birds the better, if a predator comes along and picks one off, it's not going to be me. There's an idea that the birds at the front might be better navigators, so you put the clever ones at the front who know where they're going and you follow them. And another one that's really persisted is this idea of as an energetic benefit to flying in a V formation, that for those birds flying at the back, they're not having to work as hard during the flight. This energy theory is popular among scientists, but it's really hard to test because it's hard to monitor flocks in flight, in part because they're likely to fly off with your kit. So far it's been very difficult to study flight in free-flying birds because if you start to put equipment on them and then they fly off into the distance, the chances are you're not going to see that equipment again. You need to get that equipment back to get the information off it. And so the secrets of the V have remained elusive. But in this week's Nature, Steve and his colleagues at the Royal Veterinary College have proved birds really do fly with a little flap from their friends. They spent nearly 10 years developing a data logger containing a GPS and an accelerometer to tell them where the birds are and when they're flapping when they're up in the sky. With the loggers made, they just had to make sure they got them back. Luckily, help flew in. We were fortunate enough to work with a conservation group in Austria who were trying to reintroduce the critically endangered northern bald ibis back into its former range, sort of around Austria and throughout the Alps. And what we were able to do is work with them because they train their birds to follow a microlight to teach them what would have been their historic migration routes. And what that meant we could do is we could put our devices onto these birds and we'd know we'd get them back. The team flew with the birds to Orbitello in Italy. Steve had his doubts about participating. So I got the opportunity to go up in a microlight, but the irony is I work on flight, but actually detest flying. But the guy in charge said, you really have the opportunity to go on, go up in a microlight. And I was like, don't really want to go up in something which to me is a flying chair with a hairdryer on the back, but they convinced me in the end, and I'm really glad I did it. I was amazed at how windy it was, how cold it was, and also how noisy it was. You can barely hear anything. Once back on the ground, the team took the loggers off the birds. To understand why flying in a V can save energy, they had to look closely at how air flows around the wing. Steve explains. 
So when the birds are flying, as they're moving forward, what happens is the air immediately behind the bird is pushed downwards, which is downwash, and typically for birds, downwash equals bad. However, where the wingtip is, you have this air coming off the very tip of the wing, which is considered good air, it's upwash. And by positioning their wingtips in that good air, in the upwash, that's how this benefit can be gained. So it's about being in the right spot with the other bird's wingtip to be in the good air, in the upwash that's coming off their wingtips. This pattern of airflow also happens around aeroplanes when they fly, even though bird wings flap and plane wings are fixed. The first really interesting result that we got off the loggers was that the birds were locating themselves in positions within the V formation that was completely predicted by fixed wing aerodynamics. And what we mean by that is they were positioning themselves in the best possible spots to take advantage of the good air, the upwash coming off the bird in front. But a bird is not a plane. The team next looked at the logger data to see how flapping might change the bird's formation. Here's Steve's colleague Jim Usherwood, also at the RVC. So the really exciting thing that, 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 that we thought, okay, they average a V that the, the, the airplanes would average. But of course, they're flapping along. And what we totally weren't expecting was that they might be paying attention to the flap phasing of, uh, of the bird ahead. Clever ibises flapping in sync. To take advantage of upwash coming from the wing of the bird in front, the bird behind was closely following its movements. So their wingtips traced the same path in the sky. Here's Steve again with an analogy. You have to think back to when you were a child and imagine when you go out for a walk with your parents on a day when it snowed quite heavily. And what you can do to make your life easier is to follow the path through the snow that your parents have taken. What your parents are doing is they're leaving a footprint of usefulness. So that's a similar mechanism that the birds are doing. The bird in front is leaving behind a beneficial bit of air, this upwash. And by doing the same thing in the same location, i.e. flapping your wings at the same point, you too can get the benefit of the upwash. Back to those planes again, because studying the aerodynamics of bird flight can be a useful tool in aviation. Here's Mark Bowman, chief test pilot at global aerospace and defence company BAE Systems. Uh, all different companies get their um, research, if you like, from every possible area, and it's, and it's perfectly plausible that this sort of uh, research plays exactly into a greater understanding of aerodynamic effects. But according to Mark, the upwash that's so helpful to a bird can become a downright pain for a plane. It's most probably aerodynamically bad to have uh, a level of overlap between uh, the wingtips of uh, a fixed um, fixed wing aircraft, by which I mean sort of rigid uh, wing shapes, in the fact that that circular air that is also quite uh, quite turbulent and can cause um, some quite sort of nasty uh, interactions between uh, between very closely following uh, aircraft. So aircraft designers. Um, are looking in some respects to actually minimise the activity of those, uh, those tip vortices. That said, the new findings may come in useful for a design idea BAE are developing, flocks of unmanned aircraft. Flocks of unmanned aircraft is one of the sort of theories that's placed out there for future aviation. And these sort of uh, studies, um, like this one here, are sort of the, the areas where our clever engineers would most probably start looking as part of the overall, if you like, mix of of technology that's, uh, that's out there. So anything like this is, is clearly going to, uh, to catch the eye and anything that can improve efficiency in the airborne environment is going to be very useful to all, uh, to all companies, not just specifically BAE, but certainly something that we'd be interested in. That was Mark Bowman of BAE Systems ending the report from Thea Cunningham. You also heard from researchers Steve Portugal and Jim Usherwood of the UK's Royal Veterinary College.
Watch a video featuring some lovely footage of the ibises in flight on our YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. You can read the paper plus a news and views article on nature.com slash nature. Don't go away, because a little later on we'll be showing how the oldies are most definitely the goodies, where trees are concerned. And don't forget the research highlights, which are full of starfish and cell biology. But first... This is me. My DNA. It helps make me who I am. Every piece is important. It's like a self-portrait. This part makes my eyes blue. So that's why the sun makes me sneeze. <laughs> I might have an increased risk of heart disease. Arthritis. Gallstones. Hemochromatosis. I'll look into that. This advert promotes the services of personal genomics company 23andMe. Their tests, at $99 a pop, give customers information about various genetic traits, from the innocuous, like eye colour, to the potentially life-changing, like heart disease risk. But the ad hasn't been seen on screens for a few months now. In November of last year, 23andMe received a strongly worded letter. It was from the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and it contained a warning. Telling them to stop providing health-related genetic information to consumers. That's Robert Green, a geneticist at Harvard Medical School in Boston. The FDA's reasoning is that genetic information could uh, move people either because they correctly understand it or because they misunderstand it into actions that would not be in their best interests. And that is a legitimate concern. But Green and his colleague Nita Farahani, an ethicist at Duke University, write in Nature that this precautionary approach, while a good idea, is a bit much. I asked him why. The emerging evidence, which is by is certainly not definitive, but the emerging evidence that we and others have collected suggest that the information being provided by consumer genomics companies is not in fact harmful and that people are taking it in stride and acting upon it in much the same way they would act upon it if provided uh, by physicians. Our preliminary data from the PGEN study, or Impact of Personal Genomics study, which is our NIH survey of uh, direct-to-consumer customers, has suggested that merely doing the genetic testing at all motivates people to improve their lifestyle. And... Uh, that could be a sort of hidden public health benefit that suggests that a uh, precautionary approach such as the FDA's uh, might be overcautious. But just because there hasn't been any harm, as you point out, doesn't mean there will never be. I mean, aren't they right to be cautious about this sort of thing? I think w they are right to be cautious, and we're all correct to be cautious. I guess the, the question is, when do you balance caution against the kind of innovation that uh, these and many other companies are uh, promoting when they're giving consumers an opportunity to become engaged in their own health, to monitor their own health, to understand their own um, risk for disease, and to potentially um, do things to improve their own health. I mean, this is a, this is a trend that goes far beyond uh, genetic testing in the sense that people are wearing more and more monitoring devices, uh, tracking devices. Some of these simply monitor your steps and your sleep patterns, but others are in development that will monitor your heart rhythms, uh, your EEG rhythms, 
So we're really entering a brave new world where uh, technologies and um, predictive algorithms are going to be used more and more by individuals to understand and manage their own health. Right. But I suppose some critics of 23andMe and other companies who have offered this same sort of testing agree with the FDA that they should regulate what is at the moment something of a Wild West industry. I mean, if this particular aspect uh, shouldn't be regulated in the way that they are trying to, I mean, what? how should we approach these kind of companies? Well, that's a great question, and I don't think I have a fully developed answer, but um, I do agree that there should be monitoring uh, both of the truth in advertising, which these companies make, because there are other companies that are completely untruthful in their claims, and also there should be some sort of monitoring of the outcomes of consumers who receive the information, particularly what you might consider the high-impact information. For example, many of the genetic tests that are provided by uh, consumer genomics companies offer a very modest estimate of elevated or diminished risk for common complex diseases such as diabetes or heart disease or multiple sclerosis. But a few of the genetic tests provided by 23andMe are what you might consider high impact. For example, several of the common mutations for BRCA, or breast and ovarian cancer, that's a very scary mutation, and it has the potential to frighten people if they learn that they're carrying it. It also has the potential to save their lives if they learn that they are carrying it. So I think the FDA is legitimately concerned about various types of misunderstanding. But, you know, that may not be a reason to stop the services altogether. That was Robert Green of Harvard Medical School. He and co-author Nita Farahani would like more transparency from 23andMe on how accurate their tests really are, and less regulation at this stage for companies like them. What do you think? Should the FDA let consumer genetics continue? Are you a 23andMe customer? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Nature Podcast or by email to podcast at nature.com. Read and respond to the full comment piece at nature.com slash news. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Fia Cunningham. Imagine having your eyes on the ends of your arms. That's the case for some starfish. And scientists have known about these eyes for nearly two centuries, but it's never been proven that they're involved in vision. European researchers now find that starfish use their watchful hands to find their way home. The team placed starfish at different distances from their coral reef home off the coast of Japan. The creatures could navigate their way back if they were placed less than two metres away. When the researchers surgically removed their eyes, the starfish got stuck. Their eyes are an example of a very low-resolution visual system, an essential stage of eye evolution. Read more in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. A new technique can seize RNA from a single cell in living tissue without damaging nearby cells. It'll let scientists study genes being expressed by that cell and whether their expression is affected by the environment. Scientists can use pipettes to capture RNA, but the equipment tends to disrupt the surrounding tissue. Now a US-based team have created a light-activated molecule that can worm its way into cells and stick to RNA being made from its DNA template. They added the molecule to human and mouse brain tissue. When they shone a laser on individual cells, the molecule snatched the RNA from the cell without damaging its neighbours. 
Find that paper in Nature Methods. The News Roundup is on its way, but first, here's Noah with a tall tale of old trees. Forests act as huge carbon sponges. They suck up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it in their leaves and wood. How much carbon they siphon out of the atmosphere depends on how fast they grow, but the growth rates of trees over their lifetime isn't fully understood. What scientists do know is that, as a whole, young forests sequester the most carbon, and this has led to the belief that young, upstart trees are growing more quickly than their elders. In human terms, that may seem logical, but trees don't necessarily grow like humans. I spoke to Nathan Stevenson from the US Geological Survey and started by asking about the different views of how trees grow. There have been two views out there, and it's probably been the minority view that trees put on more and more carbon indefinitely as they get larger and larger. That's, I believe, been the minority view. The majority view is their growth rate slows down. And what has been lacking is a very broad scale study to distinguish between those two ideas. And so we went out of our way to do such a broad scale study. Now, you say broad scale, and you really weren't kidding. Tell me about what you and your collaborators have done. Yes, we've analyzed two-thirds of a million trees, a total of 403 species spanning six different continents. It's been a very large group of scientists from all over the world came together to pull this off. A pretty huge undertaking. What exactly were you measuring? For most of those species, we measured the diameter at two different points in time. And from the diameter of a tree, given that uh, wood production is so important and wood volume is so important economically and ecologically, there are already a bunch of equations that have been worked out by people, allometric equations they're called, that allow us to convert the diameter measurement to a mass measurement. So with these mass measurements in hand, what have you found? Are trees slowing down in their old age? We found that for 97%, so it's the vast majority of those 403 tree species, growth continues to increase. The growth rate continues to increase as the trees get bigger and bigger. So it's actually the oldest trees in the forest which are sucking the most carbon out of the atmosphere. It's sort of like if, if you were uh, paying attention to your favorite sports team, and it turns out that the 90-year-olds on that team or the star players on the team In human terms, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it is what is happening in forests. But but hang on, don't scientists think that young forests are the ones which are the best at sequestering carbon? That might sound like a contradiction when you say that young forests are better at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere than old forests. But it's not a contradiction because young forests just have so many more little trees in them that even though each individual little tree is poorer at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere than a big tree, the net effect of having so many little trees is that they can pull more carbon out of the atmosphere collectively. Trees are pretty big players in the global carbon cycle, and this sounds like a fairly fundamental step in our understanding of how they grow. I do think these findings are going to have an effect on how we understand the critical feedbacks between forests and atmospheric carbon dioxide and therefore how the two feed back in affecting climatic changes. Might this influence efforts to conserve forests, and more specifically, old growth forests? 
if you're interested in conserving old forests, a key piece of information is just knowing which trees out there are the most important in the dynamics or the ecosystem services offered by the forest. And we've certainly known that big trees offer the ecosystem service of sequestering lots of carbon or holding a lot of carbon in them. What we didn't necessarily know is that the rate of sequestration is highest in those big trees. So in a sense, they're the star players in old forests. And that's, that's an important piece of information to know if you're trying to conserve old forests. It, it puts a little extra emphasis on the importance of big trees. That was forest fan Nathan Stevenson. His paper can be found at nature.com forward slash nature. News time now, and I'm joined by Chief Magazine Editor Rosie Mestel. Hi, Rosie. Hi there. To start off with this week, we're talking about an exciting little uh, probe that's about to wake up, Rosetta. Yes, Rosetta is a spacecraft that has been whizzing along through space since 2004, slingshotting its way past Earth and Mars and going by asteroids, and now is poised 800 million kilometers away, away from Earth, and it's about to wake up. It's been in hibernation since 2011, and its destination is a comet. It is going to release a little probe. The probe is going to land on the comet. It's going to secure itself there with a harpoon, and then it's going to measure the comet and teach us things about comets that we didn't know. Richard Van Norden in our Christmas special mentioned this as a, an exciting thing to look out for in, in 2014. Do, do scientists have high hopes for this, for this probe? Comets are primitive objects. Their gas, dust and organic molecules remain largely unchanged since they were created uh, along with the solar system 4.6 billion years ago. And so planetary scientists think that they hold strong clues about the origins of the solar system. And so they think also that comets may have delivered a large fraction of Earth's water to our planet and possibly amino acids and other organic molecules, the building blocks of life. And they want to do various studies to uh, investigate the comet and find out more and maybe test some of these ideas. Lots of things that we could possibly find out, definitely an exciting prospect. But, I mean, this comet has been moving through space for, for a very, very long time. And this spacecast, Rosetta, was launched quite a long time ago. It seems like quite a big undertaking to, to time this so perfectly to get these to arrive at the same time. Has this been a, a long process? Oh, it, it, the, the probe is on the satellite. The, it has been a long process. This has been going on since 2004. And now on the 20th of January, Rosetta is slated to come out of hibernation. And it's a sort of teeth-biting, uh, nail-biting mo- moment, I should say, for the scientists because, number one, is Rosetta going to wake up? And then the satellite has got to do a number of things when it wakes up. There's this preset alarm. This will trigger a number of automated events. The components will be, will be warmed up. The spin of the craft will be corrected with thrusters. An antenna will be unfurled and aimed at Earth. And they'll be of this anxious weight. But then it gets even more nail-biting because next Rosetta will arrive at the comet it is slated to land on in August. And then the craft has to map the comet for a suitable landing site and then land the uh, probe in November. And it's going to have to be done on autopilot, and nobody's going to know whether it works or not until they see that it has worked. One of the scientists uh, quoted in the article says, I can tell you, you sweat like hell. 
with every second of delay, immediately you say, okay, something has gone wrong. You can know you've done everything right, but it's always human nature to believe something bad has happened. Great. So watch this space for the 20th of January to see if Rosetta wakes up. From one extreme space phenomena to an extreme terrestrial phenomena, the polar expedition that went a bit awry at the end of last year. New news? Yes. um, Just a recap for those who don't know about it. This was a private expedition called the Australasian Antarctic Expedition, and it was aimed to retrace the steps of a famous Australian Antarctic explorer, Douglas Mawson, who did his exploring about a century ago. And so this expedition took off. It had uh, 74 people on the ship, including scientists, journalists, tourists, and, of course, the crew members. And right around Christmas, they got trapped in heavy ice, and various ships tried to rescue them. There was the uh, Chinese icebreaker. There was another icebreaker from Australia. There was a ship from um, France, and they all failed to get close. And eventually, on the 2nd of January, the uh, people on the ship were helicoptered out of there. So not necessarily the most successful of, of expeditions, but there's now more sort of comment from other scientists doing research in the area. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there has been a rumbling uh, going on ever since uh, the efforts uh, were undertaken to rescue these people. Um, And that has grown. In fact, this week in Nature, we have a letter from Nick Gales, the chief scientist of the Australian Antarctic Division, who takes issue with a comment by the chief scientist of this unfortunate expedition saying that the Australian Antarctic Division was actually had actually approved the venture. No, he said they did not. And furthermore, he and other people who are quoted in a news article this week criticized the expedition for getting in the way of their efforts, delaying their own research. So it's it's not necessarily the expedition itself that people have are taking issue with. It's actually the rescue attempts that have started to to interrupt other scientists' work. Research that is done down in the the Antarctic has to be vetted and approved and planned out. And an expedition like this, which is privately funded and adds on a little bit of research, could be said to be jumping line a little bit. But more, it seems to be that the objections are to the delays that uh, the rescue attempts have created in their own work. uh, Nobody is going to leave people stranded out in the Antarctic to die. But on the other hand, scientists are upset about the delays to their own work. And and how are scientists that were on board this expedition responding to these grumblings from the rest of the community? Well, Chris Turney, who's the chief scientist, said that he regrets any confusion over the Australian Antarctic Division's involvement. And in in the news article that we run, he says, at no stage did I intend to convey the impression that the projects have been subject to the competitive peer-reviewed process required for participants in the formal Australian Antarctic program. Okay, Rosie Mestel, thank you very much. And do check out nature.com slash news for those stories and much more. Or follow at Nature News on Twitter for regular updates. That's your lot, folks. Next week, how diamonds are a quantum physicist's best friend. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. 